You're listening to Why Talk Climate, an expert podcast series on mobilizing youth for climate action, produced and directed by BCCIC Climate Change. Hello, listeners, and welcome to our second episode of our Why Talk Climate podcast and our first of 2021. We are back this week after a small holiday break, and we are talking about Canada's new climate plan, which was released at the beginning of December 2020. We'd like to begin again by introducing ourselves. My name is Simran Sarai, and I'm a student in the Environmental Science Program at Simon Fraser University. Hello, everyone. My name is Bo Min, and I'm a Criminology and International Studies major, also from Simon Fraser University. We would like to take a moment to welcome our guests. Nicholas is the Canada Research Chair in Climate and Energy Policy. His research focuses on the economic evaluation of environmental policies using econometric and computational methods. He also serves as a co-editor of the Journal of Environmental Economics and Management. Thanks for coming, Nick. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Sounds perfect. Again, thanks for your time, and I look forward to the discussion we'll be having today. Thanks, Bowman and Nick. Our first question talks about the many important factors in the new climate plan. For instance, the revised social cost of carbon pricing, among others. All of these factors considered, why is Canada's new climate plan the next big step in tackling climate action? Okay, so um, Canada released its updated climate plan in December, and um, it made a big splash. And I think it made a big splash, especially because, as you alluded to, it it increased the price that Canadians will be charged when they emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, And so this was a policy that began in 2016. Um, with the Pan-Canadian Framework on Clean Growth and Climate Change, which was an agreement between the federal government and the provinces. And it was an initiative uh, by that group to put a price on carbon dioxide. Basically, the idea here is it shouldn't be free to pollute. And if it's free to pollute, we're going to get too much pollution. Just like if it's free to drink, you know, soft drinks or coffee, you're going to have people drinking too much soft drinks and coffee. And, um, and so this idea is we should put a price on the, you know, dumping carbon into the atmosphere that reflects the cost of dumping carbon into the atmosphere. And so first steps were made at doing that in uh, 2016 in the last climate plan. And this updated climate plan brought in a big update to the price that's being charged on carbon dioxide. And so the prior plan went, uh, imposed a price of $50 per ton of carbon dioxide that would be reached by 2022. And this plan um, walks that price forward to 2030 when it'll reach $170 per ton of carbon dioxide. And so that's not a, a really obvious metric. You know, most of us don't go out buying tons of carbon dioxide uh, on a regular basis. And so it doesn't, you know, $170 per ton or $50 per ton doesn't really resonate with most of us. Um, but just to give you a sense what, what that turns into, um, the uh, when, you, when we use gasoline, which is one of the main ways that we're familiar with emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, each time we burn a liter of gasoline, we release around two and a half, to, uh, two and a half kilograms of CO2 into the atmosphere. And so this $170 per ton carbon, uh, carbon dioxide price that's been promised will work out to between 30 and 40 cents per liter of gas. And so the idea is that's going to be an incentive for people to use less gasoline and an incentive for people to use less natural gas, and an incentive for people to use less coal. Anyone who emits carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases in Canada now has to pay a price for them. 
So there's no free dumping of your waste into the atmosphere. The way that the revenue is returned to businesses is a bit different than the way it's returned to households. The way that it's returned to businesses is it's kind of a special policy called an output-based rebate, where instead of providing the same rebate to every household, which is what's done on the household side, it provides a rebate based on how much output a business produces, how much, you know, how much cement they sell or how much oil they sell. And the idea here is that it should neutralize any cost disadvantage that businesses experience as a result of this carbon policy. So again, the idea is to maintain the incentive for businesses to cut their emissions, just like on the household side. But um, because businesses have to compete in a market, the, the business policy is designed to give those companies a leg up, especially against international competitors who don't necessarily face the same policies. And so this is called, on the business side, it's called the output-based pricing system. It's a mouthful, but basically what they're trying to do is take the money that's collected from industry and rebate it back to them to keep them competitive on international markets. The rest of the plan is substantial. I mean, the plan's 80 pages, it has 60 measures in it, and the carbon price is just one of those measures. Certainly it's the central measure, but there are many others as well. And so things like rebates for electric vehicles and rebates for improving houses, housing energy efficiency, and um, you know measures to try to foster a clean economy in Canada and measures to try to make expertise in the development of batteries, for example, or in the development of low carbon aluminum. And so there's all kinds of other stuff that's complementary to this carbon price. And I don't want to leave your listeners with the idea that you know the plan was just one thing. Yeah. The plan was a whole bunch of things that cut across all sectors and cut across different types of tools. It wasn't all like market-based. There was tools that were aimed directly at providing rebates to households, like an electric vehicle rebate, for example. There were new regulations that were being countenanced, uh, like a clean fuel standard. There's even discussion about regulations on zero emission vehicles or the development or, or codes for the types of houses that are going to be built in the future. And as well, there's all kinds of subsidies and strategies and initiatives for developing uh, a low carbon sector and low carbon economy uh, across all the different parts of the economy. In addition, there's like nature-based solutions, right? So there's solutions like planting trees or conserving wetlands. Um, and so I think, you know, there's an awful lot of richness to this plan. And, uh, and I just want to, you know, not leave you with this idea that's one thing, although certainly the one big thing is the carbon price. That actually clears up a lot because on Twitter, when I was seeing the new Canada climate plan come out, a lot of it was focused on the economic side of it. And I didn't really hear a ton about the nature side. I'm sure more of it will come out. But I think for a lot of our listeners, it's important to know that it is really interdisciplinary. Because on social media, if you're only focusing on one genre or one subject area, you're going to only see the information for that one area. Like, for example, all of the REM... um, academics that I follow mostly publish the economic side or the management side and I didn't really hear a lot about the nature side so that's really cool to me. Well I'm just gonna say I mean the the plan that I think the government is really pleased to run on is this two billion trees plan right this is part of the plan as well is um, this is something that gets people excited right people can see two billion trees it's hard to see a carbon tax it's hard to see an industrial strategy but you can see two billion trees and so people are excited about this people are excited about um, potentially the jobs that go along with that um, and uh, and I think you know thinking about non-climate benefits like livability or recreation and that mm-hmm. kind of thing um, the nature-based solutions are important as well 
they are not a like a major component to the greenhouse gas reductions that are expected. So I think you know maybe I think if I get the number right, maybe five or ten percent of the number of total greenhouse gas emissions comes from the the tree plan. Um, but they're certainly an important for not just cli- climate but also general natural resiliency. Let's shift the conversation a little and take a look at the role of youth. Personally, one of the favorite questions that we always have for podcasts, what role would the youth play, in your opinion, in advancing this new climate plan? And what are your thoughts on their contribution or the lack thereof that you see today? Mm, that's a great question. I don't know if I have an answer for that, but um, I think I think youth have been instrumental in pushing for this kind of stronger climate plan already. Um, you know, the big climate marches last year were very much youth driven and youth organized, and I think really conveyed to government um, and industry how important this issue is for the next generation. And so I would say, you know, partly this is a, a response to the youth energy around this issue. Um, I think that youth have, yeah, youth have made their priorities around green economy clear. Um, I would say that a lot of the elements of this plan also focus around um, training and transition um, in a way that I think speaks to the youth community who are coming, you know, going to be transitioning in their own lives and um, looking for opportunities. And I think some of the some of the parts of this plan certainly are are aimed at that. I think people. Um, often understand that it's the decision makers that impact these policies, but it's not always, It's that's not all of it, right? Um, we choose our decision makers, we vote. So I think it's super important to for us to have the time to have this kind of dialogue, right? Discussions among the public in our classrooms to reflect and think about how these impact our lives and how this will impact our societies um, in the coming months. And I think it's like what we're doing right now, this these new changes that's happening, I think that's super important to take the time and digest what those changes will mean in our societies. Yeah, I would also say, I mean, I've been in this field for uh, a while now, so I'm no longer a youth. And um, I mean, to me, this is a really exciting climate plan. Uh, This is a plan that has, you know, compared to 20 years ago, this plan is just absolutely different. And even compared to five years ago, this plan just is remarkable increase in stringency and ambition. And I think, again, that's in substantial part because of the youth movement, the youth climate movement or youth-led climate movement, climate movement in general. But I would also say that um, some of the youth I've spoken to are um, not convinced that this plan is ambitious enough. And I think, you know, for good reason. Um, And I think that it's important to continue to hold government's feet to the fire, to keep pushing for greenhouse gas reductions as fast as we can get them, um, to make sure we stay on this track to net zero by 2050, to cutting our emissions completely out of the economy. And I really feel like um, youth has played, you know, the lion's share in the role of uh, pushing government so far. And I, I'm certain that that will continue to be the way that um, that governments will continue to respond to this um, really well-informed and passionate youth that we haven't, I don't think, seen in this way before. So this has become like the number one issue for 
like this generation. And I think that's going to keep on pushing governments to advance in this area. Yeah, the area that I've always found interesting is that we keep restating, there's the climate rhetoric um, throughout history, and we keep restating the problem. But the important part is that the well-being of Canadians, along with economic prosperity, has to go alongside achieving those goals. So having that comprehensive and inclusive um, approach and understanding of how our policies would impact people's lives all across societies, all across communities, including vulnerable communities, um, is something that's difficult, I think, and also requires understanding from the public. And I think that's where the opinions differentiate and where we need to keep discuss and appropriate dialogues like this. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Nick, in regards to your and Bowman's discussion about uh, transitioning to a greener economy and this new plan is all about um, training and youth have a big role in that. And also in regards to your comments about um, how youth are always pushing for a more ambitious climate plan, um, we saw that in the States we have a new president coming in tomorrow actually and one of his first orders of business is supposedly, is rumored, is to um, rescind the approval on the Keystone XL pipeline. And that's a really big deal for Alberta. I saw Jason Kenney put out a statement. Um, Justin Trudeau put out a statement. And it's a pretty big deal for BC, too, because we also have a pipeline that's been approved in our province. Um, how do you think pipelines fit in in this role of the new climate plan? And how do you think youth feel about this whole pushing for net zero by 2050, but we also have pipelines? Because I know it's a pretty contentious subject. I've seen a lot of economists that say, yeah, this is a really good climate plan. And I agree. I think it is a really good climate plan. It's one of the most exciting ones we've seen, like you've said, in years. Uh, But at the same time, we have people who want to push Canada to have an even more ambitious plan. So what are your thoughts on that? I think this is a great question. Um, And it's not an easy question to answer. So, um, well, first of all, um, on the Keystone pipeline. So this is the one that's going south from Alberta into the States down to the Gulf Coast. And um, it was a, approved by Trump, I don't know how many years ago, whether it was right at the beginning of his term, at least three or, three or four years ago, around there, mm-hmm. um, after having been uh, you know, uh, said no to by Obama. But it hasn't moved forward in those three or four years, and not, not in a substantial way anyway. And it hasn't moved forward partly because there's not really a lot of demand for it, right? The price of oil is low and, um, and shippers don't really need this pipeline. And so some of the commentary I've seen certainly suggests that this is not, this is kind of a paper no. It doesn't really change stuff on the ground that much. But I do think, you know, as a, um, I do think that this policy does help to this this. Uh, indication we've had from the Biden administration does help to disrupt the fossil fuel um, industry. And um, I've been convinced over the last couple of years that, you know, the, the, uh, we can't just look at this issue as like an economic issue that really thinking about the power dynamics in, um, in the transition is critical. And this, you know, um, I think, again, partly youth-driven push to, um, to, 
to slow down pipeline access or to stop pipeline access has helped to disrupt the, the fossil fuel industry who's had an awful lot of power in setting climate policy or stopping climate policy in the past. And so I see this and other, um, other pipeline decisions as taking some power away from the industry and making it easier to, uh, to implement strong climate policy. Um, and, uh, and I think, again, this, is a, this has been really, you know, uh, a youth and indigenous driven uh, um, movement, I think, that has, has really slowed these pipelines down and stopped this pipeline. And so I see, I think there's costs to it that are important to assess as well. There's costs, there's disruption, especially in Alberta. And um, this is probably not the ideal way to set environmental policy. But at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that there are power dynamics and incumbents at play who are resisting strong climate policy. And this kind of um, supply-focused efforts can take can change the power dynamics in the sector and, and change what kinds of climate policies are possible. That's a great answer to a really difficult question. Um, I know a lot of people discuss it. And a lot of youth that I know are really focused on, we don't want the pipeline, we don't want any pipelines, but our last guest actually also mentioned that you have to think about the costs associated with pipelines and removing them, like you said. There's people that rely on the industry for their jobs, so what are we going to do with them? Are we going to train them under this new plan? Is there a policy that will help them? So you bring up a really good point, and it was a great answer. Thank you. Yeah, again, it's tough. I don't think... I think like thinking about government setting policy in this area, it would be not an enviable position, right? You're trying to balance very competing interests. And I certainly see the federal government as walking a tightrope. And I, you know, I feel like there's the, the climate side has started to push harder in the last couple of years, but certainly the beginning of Trudeau's administration, he was being buffeted by the, by both sides. And I feel like he tried to walk a middle line and, um, and, maybe rightly got criticized by both sides for it, um, for not picking a, not picking a side really. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this is a, again, a tough question. I think the issue of like, what do we do with uh, people in the oil sector who have become displaced is really important, not just for economic outcomes, although it is important for economic outcomes, but you know, um, displaced people are not going to support a strong climate policy. And, um, and so like thinking about how to move climate forward is it's really important to think about, you know, what happens to people that are displaced from climate policy. I'll also say though, that, uh, most of the displacements, I don't have a number for you exactly, but the displacements in Alberta from the oil sands in the last few years have not been climate driven, not been climate policy driven. They've been as a result of the slump in oil prices. Um, and so, I think a lot of people look for an enemy when they lose a job naturally and um, climate change and Trudeau has taken uh, climate change policies and Trudeau have, are seen as the enemy. But I think that most of the job losses are just uh, are just artifacts of a low oil price. And we see the same job losses in, in the States where they, you know there haven't been strong climate policy in the last few years. Um, and we see them in other countries as well. So this is these, the existing job losses have not been to do substantially to do with climate policy. That doesn't mean to say that if the world tries to get off of oil really quickly in the next 30 years, there won't be more drop losses that would be partly because of climate policy. And I think thinking about how to accommodate people and train people and provide them with um, stimulating opportunities is going to be really, really important to the success of uh, transition policy. One thing that we didn't talk about was 
how important global leadership is, right? Climate change is a global problem. And there's a lot of critique. You know, Canada's a small player from the right. You hear this a lot from the Conservative Party. Canada's a small player. We're 1.6% of emissions. Even if we cut emissions to zero today, the planet wouldn't notice. And it's true. And so part of what, um, I mean, this is part of, this is the essence of the climate change challenge, right? Is that it really takes the whole world cooperating to, to tackle climate change. And, uh, and we don't really know how to make the whole world cooperate, but getting the whole world to cooperate, I think gets a lot easier when we can sell a really, we can show off a really ambitious plan. And this is one of the most ambitious plans in the world now. And I think that, well, I hope that its effects spill beyond our borders. And I mean, I hope that, you know, um, countries look to Canada and they see a player moving forward and that encourages them to move forward on their own. They see like a case study of a successful way to reduce emissions, which I hope this turns out to be, and that helps them move forward, that helps them you know, with some learning of how, to, of how to tackle climate change. I hope that this um, generates technological advances. Some of them are, that are talked about in the plan are like battery development or low carbon aluminum or carbon captured storage. And I hope some of those help spill over beyond our borders and help um, reduce emissions more than even the plan says. And so I think one of the one of the un, big uncertainties, but my biggest hopes for this plan is that it has, impacts um, people beyond our borders. And it is really a world leading plan that I think has some potential to do that. Yeah, I, I like how you touch base upon beyond the context of Canada. Um, I think other than impacting the lives of Canadians themselves, I think this is in a way sending a message. Another role of this climate plan is sending a message and Hopefully, as you've mentioned, um, it implements change in other areas as well in terms of policies because it is a global action. Um, as I've said already, I'm Korean. I'm not Canadian, but still, as a global citizen, um, I think we all have a role of um, implementing change because our actions, now it's not just about ourselves. It's about others' lives um, because literally climate issues have been harming lives and it's a matter of life or death for a lot of people in many areas for instance climate migrants um so the most vulnerable will get the impact so i think it's really that time of reflection that this climate plan could make us in understanding how our the implications of our actions could mean to other people in vulnerable communities Bowman, Nick, I agree with you. And I just want to say thank you, Nick, for saying that you're hopeful and these are your hopes for the plan because it's easy to look at the the global scale of this problem and kind of be really scared, especially as a young person, because this is your life going forward. This is what you have to deal with going forward. Like Bowman and I might end up in policy. We might end up in climate change analysis. Who knows? But moving forward is something we're going to have to take into account in our careers and in our everyday lives. And I think it's really easy for young people and a lot of people in general to to become discouraged. And so it's nice to hear you say that you're hopeful because it's always nice to have a little bit of hope. This is still in our hands, right? We've certainly caused a lot of climate change already. Um, and some remains to be, we haven't seen everything we're going to have caused yet, but the, the it's still in our hands to change, turn things around. And so I think policies like this are, are you know, they do give you hope. Um, I hope, you know, the best thing to be, uh, the best thing that I could see would be that this plan became obsolete because other countries pushed beyond it quickly and Canada had to update in response. 
Um, that concludes our podcast. Thank you so much, Nick, for being our guest on our second episode. And we'd really like to thank our team at BCCIC Climate Change for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be coming out late in February 2021. And give us a follow on Twitter and on our brand new Instagram page where we discuss the SDGs, research on topics such as climate change and what we are doing locally to fight against climate change. Our handle is at BCCIC Climate. It has been such a meaningful discussion. I honestly loved the session and loved how new questions were raised as we go along the way. Hopefully, Nick, you can check us out on Spotify or any other platforms as we publish our podcast episode. Lastly, before we leave, we'd like to end this episode with your final remarks on how we move forward. What do you think is our role to make this new plan effective in climate change? Well, I think we should be supporting this ambitious plan and pushing government to do more. So I think this is a strong plan that will reduce emissions more so than um, just about anywhere else, more so than just about any other plan that I know of on the planet. Uh, But it's still not enough. And so we still, as civic actors, should be pushing government to do more. We should be supportive of what they've done and pushing them to do more. Thanks, Nick. Have a lovely rest of the week, everyone. See you again soon.